Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Jared Longshore entitled, A Lord and His Lady, from Grace Agenda 2022, Marriage Bootcamp. Check out the full conference, available now on Canon Plus. Grace Agenda this year is Marriage Boot Camp. And that, of course, implies something. It implies an ongoing war. The marvelous Forrest Dickinson has illustrated this quite well. You, you see it um, right here. Isn't that a lovely illustration that he's made for us? The ceremony in that jumbo jet was fantastic, I bet, wasn't it? Thanks for the flowers but I don't think the flowers are going to make it. They were very nice for the ceremony. After the ceremony, it is Geronimo, amen. And Forrest's illustration warrants the question, what happens when you land? Well, it's a war zone down there. And I'm not talking about the challenges you face in the first year learning to live together. We all know that the struggle is real in that first marriage, right? Amen? You say, my family always used Colgate toothpaste. That's why your brother's teeth are so gangly. Crest, simply white. That's the righteous thing to do. All of a sudden, modified Bible verses start appearing in frames all over the home. Blessed are the wounds of your new spouse. It's not the war that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the present war between two religions going on right now in our midst, 21st century America. Paganism on the one hand and Christianity on the other. You can speak of this war as a culture war. That's accurate. It is a culture war, but it is religious at root. And it manifests itself in our political life as well. So it's a war that pretty much covers the waterfront at this point, and marriage is right in the thick of that war. Thus, marriage boot camp. So I want to do three things in this message. First, I want to analyze the enemy. What are we up against? And that is paganism and pagan marriage. Second, I want to address what that thing is that's jumping out of that jumbo jet. You look there and you say, there's man and woman married. What is that? And we'll see that that's Christianity and covenant marriage. And the third thing I want to do is go nuclear. That's the third part of the message tonight. So let's begin by talking about what it is that we are up against. You might say that there is an all-out, an all-out attempt to paganize marriage. Here's the trajectory. Back in 1950, less than 5% of children in the United States were born out of wedlock. 1950s, less than 5% of American children born out of wedlock. Marriage, generally speaking, was held in honor. By 1970s, 13% of children were born out of wedlock. By 1990, 28% 
of American children were born out of wedlock. And today, 40% of America's children are born out of wedlock. Nearly half of American children would be what the Bible calls bastards, born out of wedlock. And all of that is merely the bubbling of the volcano. It has now fully erupted with the 2015 Obergefell Supreme Court decision that claimed a constitutional right to gay marriage. Things have deteriorated quite rapidly. Remember that it was only 10 years ago that Barack Obama himself, at least publicly, opposed gay marriage. Only a decade ago. So how are we to think about gay marriage? Well, first, it is not a thing. It is not real. I would say that gay marriage is a vapor, but a vapor, of course, is real. It is nothing. It is not a thing. If I say gay marriage, then the adjective gay is modifying the noun marriage. But in reality, the adjective gay cannot modify the noun marriage. The adjective gay is like a little puppy running himself into the stone cathedral of marriage in an attempt to change the cathedral. And that just doesn't work. So you must remember every time you hear someone say the words gay marriage, that they speak of a fiction. So where did this fiction come from? The answer is that it came from paganism. Paganism involves the worship of nature or the worship of the creature. Think of the creator-creature distinction. Envision two circles on a whiteboard, one on the top, one on the bottom, and they are distinct circles. The top circle is the triune God, and the bottom circle is everything else. The top circle is the creator. The bottom circle is the creation. In that bottom circle, you have everything that is not God that has been created, that is real. That includes everything from plywood to you and me to ants to angels. It's all there in that bottom circle. Christians are in the bottom circle, and we worship the top circle. Pagans are in the bottom circle, and they worship the bottom circle. That's the religion. And as we know from John Calvin, there is no third option. There is no, I won't worship anything. You're either going to worship the top circle, the triune God, or you're going to worship the bottom circle. And here's the key point. Homosexual sin is the fruit of paganism. Paul says so in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. There we read these words. They changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. So there is the creature worshipping paganism right there. This is what the people did. They worshipped the creature. And the very next verse says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. In the immediate wake of turning away from worshiping the creator and worshiping the creature, you have LGBTQ sexual perversion. It's the outgrowth of this pagan worship. So the LGBTQ revolution, which all Americans can now see, is not merely a baffling phenomenon. It's not merely an immoral practice. It is the manifestation of a new religion, a thoroughly pagan one. 
It's from this angle that we can see just how devastating the Obergefell decision was. It's one thing to have LGBTQ communities throughout the United States. It's another thing to have LGBTQ studies in the universities. But it's an entirely different ball of wax to have the Supreme Court decide that they will ground LGBTQ sexual practice in the Constitution of the United States. And what's more, Obergefell not only grounds LGBTQ practice in the Constitution, it has declared that the puppy indeed has modified the cathedral and demands that all Americans everywhere agree to this paganization of marriage. So if doctrine is upstream from culture and culture is upstream from politics, and our politics, our politics are already propagating this LGBTQ perversion, that means that we've been pagan for a very long time. We've been thinking this way. We've been worshiping the creature for years now, if we're this far downstream. So the paganization of marriage signals a deeper and broader paganization in American culture. It's not like our marriage practice is really messed up, but our everyday thinking and living is solid. We're doing the pagan marriage thing because we're thinking, acting, and worshiping like pagans. And we have gone through phases to get here. Let me illustrate the progression by talking about four men in a coffee shop. Christian man, rational man, postmodern man, and pagan man. A Christian and a rationalist walk into a coffee shop, and as they sit there, they observe the fact that there is a blue chair beside them. And both Christian man and rational man are in agreement about this. That's a lovely coffee shop to be in, by the way, when you can agree, hey, that's a blue chair. We can get some things done around here if we could agree on these things. But they agree that it's a blue chair for entirely different reasons. Christian man says, that is a blue chair, my friend, because God has created it so, God sustains it so, and God so works upon us that we can ascertain by human reason that that indeed is a blue chair. And rational man laughs at his friend. He says, I don't need all the God mumbo jumbo stuff, buddy. It's self-evident that that is a blue chair. I don't need all of this talk about God's creation and his providence and his present kindness toward us. It's simply a blue chair. This is the situation that we've been in for a very long time in America. Christians and those who had some common sense and everything was quite peaceful in the coffee shop. But eventually, postmodern man walked in and he joins this conversation and he tells the two friends that they need to lighten up. The object in question may be a blue chair to them, but it might be a yellow sofa to someone else. To a third party, it might even be a green futon. Who is to say? To each their own, as the saying goes. Now, Christian man and rational man both know that postmodern man's out to lunch. They know that. But they put up with him. He doesn't have a gun to anybody's head. He's just a very strange man. And why the intellectual integrity of this establishment is falling apart, no one's breaking coffee mugs or throwing chairs yet. We've been meandering along in that situation for a good while now, but a new development is upon us. A fourth man walked into this coffee shop. He goes by the name of Pagan Man. As he enters, that old Western dual music begins to play. The barista ducks down behind the bar. The ladies scatter. He looks at the three men in this coffee shop and he says, you are all wrong. The object there is a pink elephant and you will all confess it to be a pink elephant or off to the gulag with you. 
right at that point, the postmodern man says something. He's been smoking the wonky weed this whole time. Hey, buddy, loosen up. At which point, pagan man slaps him with the back of his hand. Postmodern man falls down to the ground thinking that's okay because to someone somewhere that was an act of love. (laughs) Rational man is inching his way closer and closer to Christian man. Beginning to think that he needs to hang his observations on something more than human reason. And that's a silver lining in the midst of this debacle we're in. And Christian man is the only one that will stand up to pagan man who insists that we all now call down up the sun, the moon, and Bruce Jenner a mother. That's the state of things at this present moment. And marriage is right at the center. Just replace the blue chair with marriage and we can see what is going on. For a long time, Christian man and rational man said that the marriage between one man and one woman was a marriage. The Christian maintained the covenantal idea, which is not merely his idea, but is the true state of things. That man and woman are bound in marriage because God has made it so. God sustains it so. Rational man doesn't buy the God mumbo jumbo, but he has respect for marriage between one man and one woman. He says, it is self-evident, buddy, that this is a marriage. I watched the vows. I heard the vows. There indeed is one man, there is one woman, and that's all you need. You don't need this covenantal talk about God himself bonding two humans together, making them one. Postmodern man walked in insisting that the real location of marriage is in the heart and that really it can be whatever you want it to be. And pagan man has walked in pointing to a man and another man saying, this is a marriage and you will bake the cake or off to the gulag with you. That's the mess that we're in. That's the war that we are in. If you leave off the Christian conception of marriage, and that is covenant marriage, then everything goes haywire. If you think that marriage merely consists in human vows, which is what rational man believes, then you will end up at gay marriage or marriage to a robot for that matter. And yes, that really happens. You can type it into Google. Of course, it didn't really happen because marriage to a robot is also not a thing. But somebody attempted it. Here's the bitter pill for us to swallow. We Christians lost our understanding of covenant marriage long before the Supreme Court decision of Bergefell versus Hodges. In short, we, the saints, bought into rational man's vision of marriage. And that is that marriage is nothing more than a contract between two parties. But here's the good news. As the coffee shop illustration indicates, one's marriage doctrine is connected to one's whole outlook on life. The world has gone mad in general, and so they have gone mad on marriage. But the reverse is also true. Our marriages are a beacon of light in a dark world. Our marriages are a testimony that, as Judge Clarence Thomas has said, north is still north. And our marriages are a witness to the truth that there is a God in heaven who is still at work in the world, uniting and dividing, raising up and putting down, giving life and killing. Covenant marriage is a monument to the truth that God is not dead. So that's what we're up against. That's what that man and that woman there, hitched, united by God, are going to face when they land on the ground. 
increasing paganism, evidenced by Obergefell, evidenced by 40% of Americans being born out of wedlock. We disdain marriage because we disdain God, and we are worshiping the creature. But there is hope in Christianity, and there is hope in covenant marriage. So let's talk about covenant marriage. We can start by saying that marriage is more than the product of the will of the parties involved. If you're a note taker, just write that down. Marriage is more than the product of the will of the parties involved. We are so steeped in our secular humanism that we really have taken on a sense of deity. We believe that we are the creators of things. We have forgotten the fundamental truth that in him we live and move and have our being. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Applied to marriage, this means that we think marriage is something that we create and God subsequently blesses. But that's not the case. Marriage is not something that we create and then God subsequently blesses. The essential text is Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. It says this, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Think about that verse. It teaches that God really does join together. His hand does the joining. And the question naturally follows. Does God join just anybody together in marriage? And the answer to that question is no. God sets the terms and parameters of marriage. When God joins a man and a woman in marriage, he creates a new thing that did not exist before. Prior to the marriage, you had Jack Thompson and Jill Williams. After the marriage, you still have Jack and Jill, but you had Jack and Jill before. The new thing that you have, and note that thing is in the singular, is the Thompsons. A new creation. The Thompsons weren't there before. You walk out of the ceremony, the Thompsons are now there. They are one new and real thing. The Thompsons exist, and God is the one who made the Thompsons. God's creation of the Thompsons is something categorically different than the creation of a business arrangement. The former is a contract, or the former is a covenant, and the latter is a contract. In other words, the former is something that God himself binds. And here I'll borrow an illustration from Pastor Doug. Say Jeff and Bob agree to a business deal in which Jeff will supply 100 tractors and Bob agrees to this business deal. He is going to pay Jeff X amount of dollars for these 100 tractors. They sign the contract, they shake hands, and they part ways. But three weeks later, Jeff's tractor manufacturing plant burns down. Bob is gifted 100 tractors by a rich uncle who got out of the farming business up north. Neither man has a need for that contract anymore. It's not going to do them any good. They can come together, call it off without harm, foul, or sin. But such is not the case with Jack and Jill. Say three weeks after their marriage, it's really not working out for either of them. Say kids are not even involved. This deal that we made isn't profiting either of us. Well, tough tough. You didn't enter into a business contract. God actually joined you together. God has not merely overseen verbal commitments. He's actually created 
and bonded Jack and Jill such that they are now the Thompsons and what God has joined together, let man not separate. So I'm not coining the term covenant marriage. I'm not putting the adjective on marriage and then commending it to you as one approach of many. You know, dieting is a thing. A keto diet is a certain approach to a diet. I'm not offering you covenant marriage as a keto approach to marriage. It's really proven to get some results. Try this out. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying covenant marriage is the only marriage that there is. It's the only marriage that exists. Now, why can we say that marriage is covenant marriage? Well, we can say that because God himself says so. And the key text is Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 through 15. We hear these words there. Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did he not make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit. And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. That Malachi 2 passage is massive. We desperately need it for our time, even when it's warm and all of the bulletins are flying like they are right now. You remember, this is a marriage boot camp. We're trying to simulate. <laughs> we can do it. Malachi 2. God rebukes his people saying that they have dealt treacherously with the wife of their covenant. God calls marriage covenant marriage. It's Malachi 2.14. The Hebrew word used there for covenant carries the sense of an alliance or a league. This alliance is a real alliance, a real league, a real thing, and Malachi tells us some important things about this marriage covenant. God is the originator of the covenant. Now, I'm not just talking about your, your personal covenant, the covenant that you entered into with your spouse. He is the originator of the league that we call marriage, of the institution that we call marriage. You say, who established this? Who ordered it? And the answer is, God did. That's, why Malachi, that's what Malachi means when he says, and did not he make one? He's rebuking the men of Judah for forsaking their wives and going after women of a strange God, daughters of a strange God, women that are outside of the covenant of Israel. They were marrying in. And these polygamous marriages, and God says to them, did not God make one? And here he's talking about Eve. 
He made one Eve, not two or three or four. He united Adam and Eve in one covenant. This is God's design. This is God's institution. John Calvin says of this verse, So now our prophet reasons, has not God made one? That is, consider within yourselves whether God, when he created man and instituted marriage, gave many wives to one man. By no means. Ye see then that spurious and contrary to the character of a true and pure marriage is everything that does not harmonize with its first institution. That's why gay marriage is not a thing. By pointing Judah back to God's original design, Malachi is not merely saying that you should do it the way God did it, as if God's original is the substance back there, and our marriages today are a shadow that ought to look like the original prototype. He's not saying that. He's saying this is the very institution that exists. There is no other institution. With this foundation laid, we can gain a right understanding of what Malachi means by saying that God is witness between thee and the wife of thy youth. The point is not simply that God witnesses your marriage like your family or your church or your friends. They come and they witness your marriage. They are observers of your marriage. But God says that he is witness between you and the wife of your youth. He's actually the one who joins you together. He is a party to this marriage covenant. He set the framework of marriage from the very beginning, and he enjoins every marriage covenant that has ever been enjoined. So here's something that evokes wonder. Say somebody asks you, what, what is the secret sauce to marriage? You've been married for a while. Seems that it's going well. What's, what's really the, the thing that makes it work? Amen. You might say, I made a vow. I made a vow. And I intend to keep my vow till death do us part. And if you answer that way, praise the Lord. We need people to answer that way. I'm resolved. I made a vow. I intend to keep my vow. That's how it works, bud. We need that. But remember, rational man can talk to you about keeping his word. I made a vow. We exchanged vows, and I intend to keep it. What you can say, what Christians can say, what everyone ought to say, but what we know to say is that the secret sauce is that God joined me to this woman. God joined me to this man. What's the secret sauce? It's not found in me. It's not ultimately found in my resolve or my commitment. God himself bound me to this woman. He made the two one. That's the secret sauce. And it's quite enchanting. You've likely heard of Chestertonian Calvinism. Someone told me recently that he was a Chestertonian theonomist, which that sounds super fun. Since we have this abundance of Chestertonianness, I'll go ahead and call it Chestertonian marriage. Here's a quote from Chesterton to help clarify what I mean by the phrase. Chesterton once said, All the terms used in the science books, law, necessity, order, tendency, and so on, are really unintellectual. The only words that ever satisfied me as describing nature are the terms used in the fairy books. Charm, spell, enchantment. A tree grows fruit because it is a magic tree. 
Water runs downhill because it is bewitched. It's one of my favorite quotes from him. So it is with marriage. Your marriage grows because it's a magic marriage. When you were joined in marriage, you were bewitched. Now I have to be careful because some of you think I'm bordering on blasphemy. But this bewitched and magic language is the kind of thing you have to say these days to snap the American church out of its secular humanism. We think the ultimate cause of our marriage is the human will, but marriage is more than the product of the will of the parties involved. Something happened to you, and it happened to you from outside of this world. In this sense, God put a spell on you. And I don't mean that he struck you with an arrow like a heavenly cupid. I'm not talking about the silly sentimentalism that you see in modern romance movies. My point is that the origin of your marital bond is otherworldly. Marriage comes from the same place the word comes from, outside of creation, the top circle. Marriage comes from the same place salvation comes from. You have to look up and you have to look by faith. Now you can see what the radical feminists were really gunning for when they wanted to destroy the patriarchy. They were not going after simple human patriarchs. They wanted to undo the heavens. They wanted to take God's sun and moon and stir them up in a blender of oblivion. They wanted to undo covenant and the covenant-keeping God. But it didn't work. Little angry puppies can't modify the cathedral. So I said at the outset that I wanted to consider what it is that we are up against. That's the first thing, and that's paganism and pagan marriage. Then I wanted to address the nature of the military unit that's jumping out of that jumbo jet. And we've seen that it's covenant marriage that God himself joins together. The final thing I wanted to do is go nuclear. So here we go. If you were to miss this last point, then you would only be a little encouraged. You would have a fresh apprehension of the rising paganism that's going on in the world around you, so you would know that we are up against a big fight. But you would know that your personal military unit is tighter than you thought it was. I thought it was just about my commitment to you and your commitment to me, but I see that God himself is the one who joined us. So you know that it's a really big fight. You know that you have a tight military unit, but none of that is nuclear yet. You need to go nuclear. Here's the nuclear weapon. You're Christians, which means that your marriage is hooked up to the marriage. Your marriage covenant with your bride is hooked up to God's covenant with his bride. Marriage between one man and one woman is not the only marriage that we hear about in the Bible. God himself has a bride. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14 says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. God's marriage to his people is like a man's marriage to his wife. These are two covenants. The former is God's covenant of grace with his covenant people. 
The latter is a marriage covenant between man and woman that God himself establishes. These are two covenants. In God's covenant with his bride, he promises grace upon grace. He vows his strength and his help. And he covenants all of this by his son, Jesus Christ. So when you jump out of the jumbo jet and find yourself in the middle of a hot battle down below, it is not as if you have jumped out of God's bond of love. He has embraced you and his son, Jesus Christ, through covenant. You're not merely radioing back to him through prayer as if all that he can supply you with is air support. You do radio back to him in prayer. You must, and he does supply you with air support. But his covenant with you means that where you stand, right in the midst of the battle, you are in God's house. You are bound to him, and all of his promises to you are yes and amen in Christ. You're Christians. You've been baptized in the triune name. God has marked you. God has loved you. God has embraced you in his son, Jesus Christ. And this covenant that God makes with his bride, unites all of these various married couples parachuting down together, fighting together. All of those Christians make up the one bride of Jesus Christ to whom God has promised grace. Now it's plain from Ephesians 5 that human marriage is a symbol of Christ's marriage to the church. You've likely heard that before. Human marriage, anytime we see it, we are reminded of Jesus Christ's marriage to his bride. But there is a more organic relationship between these two covenants that ought to encourage us. And I want to encourage you with that organic relationship. We see this in the case of Malachi chapter 2. The men of Judah profaned the covenant of their fathers. Malachi 2.10. That refers to the covenant of grace. The covenant of their fathers was the covenant of grace. And the men of Judah had profaned that covenant of grace. How did they profane that covenant of grace? They profaned that covenant of grace by marrying the daughters of a strange God, by marrying women who were outside of that covenant of grace. And the result was that such men were cut off out of the tabernacles of Jacob. Malachi chapter 2, verse 12. So their outright unfaithfulness to their marriage covenant resulted in them being cut off from God's gracious covenant with his bride. We say that again because these two covenants are not unrelated. Their outright unfaithfulness to the wife of their covenant resulted in them being cut off from God's covenant of grace with his bride. We hear about the interplay of these two covenants in 1 Corinthians 7.14 as well in the New Testament. There Paul says that even an unbelieving spouse is sanctified by a Christian spouse. Now, in the case of the New Testament, we're not dealing with Christians that entered into marriage with an unbeliever, with someone outside of covenant. That was the case back in Malachi in the Old Testament. In the case of Corinthians, these are two pagans that were married. The gospel came. One believed, one didn't. Here we are. So you have a Christian, a faithful one, and the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the Christian spouse. And the children of such a marriage, the text says, are holy. As husband and wife deploy out of that jumbo jet, there are more persons than just the two of them deploying out of that jumbo jet. There are more saints there than just two. 
There are generations of saints in that picture right there. So there are two godly seeds parachuting down, and those two godly seeds will come together and produce more godly seed. And that causes pagan strongholds to tremble. This vision of marriage is what God has always been after. Malachi says that God designed marriage so that he might seek a godly seed. That's Malachi 2.15. God established marriage, and he established marriage the way that he established it, that he might seek a godly seed. Older writers said this plainly. Uh, Richard Stock was an English Puritan, and he had the privilege of being a parish minister to the young John Milton. That would be a win. Richard Stock said this, The end of marriage, the most proper and excellent end of it, is the procreation of children for the propagation of God's church and God's worship. Even rebukes those who would seek a wife or a husband without thinking about this most excellent end, quote, the increase of God's church and a religious seed that should further and set forward the true worship of God. Can you imagine that being the ideology of the young people that are like courting? Like, why do you want to get married? Well, it's my church growth strategy. That's exactly what we're after. God is seeking a godly seed. So notice how significant marriage is. If two Christians marry and procreate, the child of that union is godly seed. The child of that marriage covenant, which is hooked up to God's covenant with his bride, is a covenant child. In other words, that child increases the church. But if two unbelievers marry and procreate, the child of that union is not godly seed. Yes, there is a covenant marriage there between the unbelieving man and the unbelieving woman. God genuinely unites them together in covenant marriage, but that marriage is not hooked up to God's covenant with his bride, God's covenant of grace. It follows that children of such a marriage covenant are not in God's covenant of grace, and the church has not grown by the birth of that child. This is the nuclear weapon. And we, of course, would look to the unbelieving man, the unbelieving woman, the unbelieving child, and call them all to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do not have fundamentally in the birth of that child a covenant child, and we do have that in the case of Christians that have been united together in covenant marriage. Our God in heaven laughs at those who would rebel against him on earth and thwart his design of marriage. God himself instituted marriage. God himself joins every man and woman that has ever been enjoined. God has covenanted himself to his bride, the church, and God unites man and woman in marriage that he might build his church with a godly seed. All of this means that we win the war. We win the war. It's crazy right now in America, and we win the war. You could look at the crater of Western civilization right now and begin to ask, will genuine covenant marriage be utterly dissolved and wedlock as we know it become a thing of the past? You could ask, will unbelief overrun the whole earth? Does creature-worshipping paganism win? And God laughs from the heavens. And he says this to us. If ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should not be day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, 
that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne. And with the Levites, the priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites that minister unto me. Amen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full conference, Marriage Bootcamp, Grace Agenda 2022, now available on Canon Plus. Mm-hmm.